This event recording is brought to you by the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Good evening and uh, welcome to all our friends and guests. My name is Neville Bolt. I'm the director of the King's Centre for Strategic Communications, which we abbreviate to KCSC. And together with our partners, NATO Strategic Communications Centre of Excellence, which is based in Riga in Latvia, under the direction of Mr. Janis Sartz here. We thank you for coming tonight. So tonight is a special occasion. In this august institution, graced by the rhetoric of prime ministers and political and literary greats for, well, nearly two centuries now, we shine the spotlight on an unusual achievement. And we showcase this new book. Has everybody got a copy? Fake News, a Roadmap. But before I elaborate, I'd like to thank a dear colleague, Professor Nicholas O'Shaughnessy, who as a member of the club has offered this splendid backdrop to tonight's event. And I'm particularly grateful to Mr. Alex Aitken, uh, Director of UK Government's Communications Service, uh, who's rushed away from the affairs of state to support this, I was about to say launch, but I think this is a celebration. Um, and we'll, we'll be hearing from both a little later. Now, back in the summer of 2016, Janis Sartz, and I created the foundations for a significant partnership. And this was a coming together of the world's greatest politico-military alliance, namely NATO, and the world's leading brand in the study of strategic affairs and international relations. Have you guessed? <laughs> the Department of War Studies at King's College London, so um, never let it be said that we, we lack ambition. So Yanis and I talked back in that summer of the rapidly emerging field of strategic communications in a world of information and technological proliferation and of the dramatic changes in how war and violent conflict were manifesting themselves. And we talked of the need for rich research, uh, deep understanding. And we recognize that such research demands patience and intellectual rigor, requiring long hours, months, years, scouring archives and compiling data. But we also observed that a week is a long time in politics and that the need for good scholarship to support the efforts of the policy and practitioner communities was paramount in these difficult times. So it was also apparent to us that in uh, the King's Center for Strategic Communications in the Department of War Studies, we were nurturing an untapped talent resource of not just our 
PhD, our doctoral students, but also of our master's students too. Then, eight months ago, we set some of our best master's minds the task of analyzing a complex concept that had captured the zeitgeist, namely fake news. And it amounted to little more than a buzzword, a catchphrase, a, an expletive on Twitter. The kind of word where you're supposed to know what it means when you hear it. Except the reverse is actually the case. Very, pu very few people have done the difficult thinking and tried to work out exactly what fake news means. So we had three aims. One, to bring some order and clarity into this amorphous and rather wayward concept. Two, to build a research partnership between NATO Strategic Cent uh, Communication Center of Excellence and our King's Center. And then three, to innovate through the minds of our master's students the first generation of homegrown strategic communicators. This book, which everybody has, is the outcome of our first aim. It's the output of our second aim too. The second aim, to build a research partnership and bridge into daily politics and geopolitics has been underpinned by our sending master's students <coughs> as interns and researchers to Latvia for three month periods, center to center. And we're about to send our eighth researcher in the last year. So far, therefore, seven women and one man. And then our third aim, to innovate by fostering young talent, brings me to you and you and you and you and you. 15 authors, two of whom have edited this collection of multiple insights into fake news. Now, many couldn't fly in today because of bad weather, but all deserve to be mentioned by name. Iona Allen, Jenta Altus, Alexander Averin, Julia Conchi, Sarah Dooley, Erin Duffy, Douglas Gray, Leonie Hayden, Mitchell Ilbury, Natalia Kantovich, Chelsea McManus, Celeste Michaud, Emma Moore, Kirat Renata Sambi, and Siri Strand. And I speak on behalf of <coughs> Professor Mike Rainsborough, the head of the, Depart the Department of War Studies, and Professor David Betts, sitting here, the deputy head of department, and myself, when I say that as your teachers, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and a privilege to work alongside such fertile minds 
and wonderful imaginations. Fake News, a roadmap, was written at the same time as you were writing your, your master's dissertations over the summer. Now that's no easy feat of discipline, concentration, and multitasking. Your research has been peer-reviewed and has already been submitted as evidence to the fake news and disinformation inquiry of the House of Commons Digital, Culture, Media and Sport Committee. And tonight it will gain a much broader reach. You are special people and this is your special night. So may I thank you all for coming and offer a final word of gratitude to Ben Heap and Linda Kurika of NATO, Centre of Excellence, for helping to see this project through to its happy conclusion. I now hand over to Yanis Sartz for his comments before Alex Aitken leads the discussion with the two editors of the book, Jente Alters and Leonie Haydn. Yanis? Thank you, uh, thank you very much. Uh, it actually feels like home when I look outside, uh, really. Uh, and there's one saying that back uh, or up in the south in Antarctica, when the winter storm is coming, penguins cuddle together in their groups to withstand the storm for warmth and the dangers of it. Today we are in a group which is tight to think about the storm of the fake news. One would ask, what's the problem with the fake news? But then, if you think about it, our democracy is founded of the basic principle of truth. If we're not able to hold up to it, the whole process is very, very difficult, if not to say impossible. So that is a very important element to uphold our values during the storm, where not only our interest in seeking out truth are changing, but also when somebody is trying to use the momentum and undermine our ability to find truth or to be interested in what is truthful and fact. We find that in these circumstances where all emotions rage, what is right and what is wrong, one voice is really not heard enough. And that is academic voice. Where the fact, the reality, is one of the most rigorous thought-after things. But because of the way sometimes the argument is presented, it is very difficult for the audience to wait until the argument is finished. So one of our goals is to bring back the academic, facts-based argument in the mainstream of a public debate. 
There is another aim that we have from our son's perspective, and that is that you have to hear every single voice. And the voices that are not typically heard are from the young people. Okay, we can say we tend, they tend not to talk about these subjects, they tend not to be interested in that, which is, I don't, do believe, not the case. It's because we've not taken care to listen. So when the strategic, King's College Strategic Communication Center came up with the idea of the book, we thought that is a brilliant possibility to support something that brings both. Ability to hear to the academic argument in a way that you can really understand it and listen into it. Not, well, I, I wouldn't imply this audience, but people more or less that are reading The Economist and other more sort of elaborate news uh, creators. But also listen and don't put the barriers for the young people because they have something to say, they have a perspective which is important because they are the future. As simple as that, isn't it? So, therefore, we believe that is important to support that idea and come forward and, and, and really develop it into something that is uh, useful. It wouldn't be possible without the King's College, the two editors that you'll hear, the authors of different chapters, but that is one thing that is requiring, this, this time is requiring. The business is not as usual. Things are changing. Technology is having an impact. The way we consume information. The things are changing as we speak. So, keeping up the old tradition, how we find what, understanding what is happening, whom do we involve in that process are not relevant anymore. I've had a privilege to be part of process of building the renewed country. It's been 20 plus years of experience. One thing I know from that is you have to involve everyone and use is an asset because that is a moment you think out of box. Because life outside on the street, the realities change. So you have to get that in. And I'm very happy that with that project, with this product in particular, we've been able to put forward some of these ideas we're, ready, uh, we're interested to support. And obviously, as far as we are concerned from NATO Centers of, Ex uh, of Excellence perspective, that is just the first. It's the beginning of it. But that is the process we have to all take part. And thank you very much for us, you all being here. And thank you for Professor O'Honnessy for making it happen. As a historian, I have to say, I just love that tradition. It's, it's splendid. Nowhere else in Europe you would find that on that same splendor. So it's, it's really remarkable. Because I think that is also sending a message. There is an old and new, and only the combination of those two things are really going to make it possible for us to prevail in this not simple uh, situation, but 
I think we have all the ingredients for actually winning that, I would say, fight. With that, Alex. Now, I might be the Director of Government Communications. I am the Chairman of the Westminster Wanderers Football Club. <laughs> but I know that I've made it as an old boy from the London School of Economics when I'm given the privilege of being invited to speak on behalf of an organisation that we used to rudely describe as the Strand Polytechnic, um, uh, the great uh, King's College uh, London. And it's a real privilege to be here with Neville and with Yanis. And you probably heard what he just said. I have been part of building a country these last 20 years. What an extraordinary thought. And there are some of us, not um, uh, young men like Gerald Mullally, but um, uh, a former advisor of the Shop. but uh, Neville and I will remember when the idea that Latvia would be free again and Lithuania and Estonia and everywhere else was but a dream. So it's marvellous that we uh, are here uh, together uh, tonight. I'm not going to speak for long because we need to hear from the editors of the publication. We also need audience involvement because communications is about engagement, not broadcast. Um, but I wanted to formally thank Yanis and, and Neville and congratulate all those involved with this um, excellent uh, publication, uh, Fake News, A Roadmap. And my practical <coughs> bit, I'm not sure I'm into all this academic stuff, but my practical bit as Director of Government Communications is to say to you, I think that this is a rich and powerful source of information and understanding about how we analyse, assess and challenge lies and disinformation. Now, partly to prove that I have read this, there's some things that I want to learn. And I have read all 78 pages. I sat down on Sunday, I was worried, I looked at the end, went to 100. I was mildly grateful that being a great academic publication, there were 22 pages of sources. Um, um, and there are many points I could make, but I want to leave that uh, to uh, our authors. But I do, I do love the fact that I do surprise audiences around uh, Europe when I say the British government has issued a proclamation against fake news in 1674. And you can see that on page 14. Yes, you can open it. I'm giving you a bit of a crib. So you say, I've read the book now. But the, um, uh, the definition of fake news. Also, an extraordinary idea. Our authors and our writers have defined truth. And I didn't know about the correspondence theory or the coherence theory of truth, something we practice in the government communications uh, service. But on page 23 and 24, that what is truth? And certainly as a government communicator, I know that we have to be counter-brand rather than counter-narrative. We have to say that we live a, in a free and successful society. And those values that underpin what we do are far more effective at making our case than saying Yabu sucks to the other side, or indeed worse. I did enjoy, as a historian, um, uh, on page 29 and 30, the ideas about the necessity of a strategic lie. I have to say, I've occasionally used this with my very fine, lovely wife and my very horrible children. Um, uh, but um, uh, JFK over Cuba, Jimmy Carter over Iran, John Major, who I, I, I work for, over, uh, over the peace in Northern Ireland. You can see why sometimes that is necessary in the pursuit of uh, peace. Finally, how we counter it. And certainly, to me, as a practitioner, I'm interested in the analysis, <coughs> in the history, in the concept of truth, of course. But from page 69 onwards, well, you can go down the German route, law. And the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, has uh, made it clear that if we can't 
bring more sanity and order to the internet, to the web, then regulation and legislation are certainly options that we would consider. After that, institutions. You talk about the Global Centre for Engagement, which we work with. Self-management by major publishers. Well, that's a big challenge, of course, for the big internet companies. Education as the finish option. Technology to identify unsourced and unverifiable news, which is really, really exciting. If we could get Amazon Alexa to say, yeah, you know, that's actually bullshit. That would be... Um, uh, and that is a term used in the book, not that I'm using um, uh, profanely. <laughs> Um, uh, and finally, crowdsourcing and actually working out as the example given for first draft news. So, the origins of fake news, the definition of truth, the strategic lies, and how you counter it are some of the things that struck me from the book. Well, I could mention much more in your assessment of states and how they operate and, and, and so on. Yeah, are there things that you would want to pick up and you think that I and the audience should uh, uh, know as you went through your research and you looked at what was important and not? Um, well, I think the most important thing is to look at the title of the book, which is Fake News Roadmap, um, for a reason. We didn't call it Disinformation Roadmap, even though we think that we should ne not necessarily be talking about the word fake news. It encompasses so much that it sort of loses definition. But that's why we decided to go for it. That's why we decided to write about fake news, because... What we want to explain is why we should not just look at disinformation, we should not just look at misinformation, we should look at everything that's happening in society and not see it as this amazing new thing that we've never seen before. Because, especially in academics, if we look at things that we've never seen it before, then how are we going to explain it? And hence what we've tried to do is look at fake news and explain why that term is so big now, why is that the discourse that everyone talks about? Yes, and like also to, to expand on that kind of how is fake news embedded in general changes in society and developments in society and this, this talk of um, an increase in populist politics, a post-truth era, um, a decrease in trust, how does this all inter interrelate? And that's why we came up with this idea of a map because we realised fake news as a term, it's not that straightforward, it's not kind of something where we can give you all the explanations and you'll reach one solution at the end but actually fake news is kind of an avenue into exploring the interconnected issues of our time Yeah, and um, you said the only in the chapter I believe you yeah. wrote about the strategic goals of, of fake news mm -hmm. and disinformation, you said look there are four goals, commercial gain political uh, uh, gain but also exclusion and inclusion, particularly in the um, uh, in the goals of, of populist politicians, is there any more commercial gain, political gain, exclusion or inclusion that you think is a particular danger or a particular focus for, for fake news? Well, I think, um, so the way populism and fake news is usually being discussed is in terms of exclusion. So you're trying to create an in-group that excludes an out-group, both in terms of... Um, Often populists will say they're representing the people versus the um, hegemonic powers of government. Um, and that is often represented as this kind of communication strategy of exclusion. But actually, when you look at how fake, kind of how <coughs> truth or bending of truths or a kind of a disregard for truth is being used in, used by so called populist politicians, they, they, they will say that those hegemonic powers in government, they are associated with academics, with science, and that's, they are using all those kind of spheres of authority to keep the people in their place. And so 
um, by saying actually you don't need that background knowledge. You don't. You can you can look at the world and interpret it in your way of your local truth and my idiosyncratic opinion as a politician. You are making use of that confusion which is out there. So yeah. Yeah. Um, another point that struck me, and I used today, because I got this very marvellous gentleman from Edelman, the public relations company, who said to me, you need to hear about our survey, which I've heard about, and it's referred to uh, in here, because it's really important, because trust in government is falling, and it's a disaster, and you must do something about it, and, and so on. But you make the very powerful point that trust in government is not necessarily what you would desire to achieve at a very high level because autocracies uh, are highly trusted, it, it seems. So where do you think the balance is for, for trust as a proxy for truth and the strength of a democracy? So I think trust is extremely important, but it's such a difficult concept to um, quantify or even talk about in an informed way. Um, so most definitions of political trust they highlight two things. It's that if, if an individual citizen trusts a government, they, they believe that they, that institution they trust in will act in their favor in uncertain times because they don't know what the future will be. <coughs> so a, a lack in trust can be due both to the impression that people have of their politicians and their actions and their perception of the environment and their perception of what, what kind of times they're living in. And um, I think there, nowadays there's a lot of discourse, a lot of talk of crises, of immigration crises, of financial crises, of um, fake news crises. And um, the, the most recent survey actually from this year in Edelman, um, they showed that people were very distrustful of the media and this wasn't correlated with finan financial hardship or economic hardship. I mean, the, the markets, it, it's flir the, the the markets are flourishing at the moment, and that's a very curious discrepancy, which I think can maybe partly be explained by this, but it's just this feeling that's out there and this unsettled feeling of uncertainty to do with a lot of information which we're constantly bombarded with on our phones. Thank you. And, and yet, a final point for, for, or final question for me before we go to our audience. On, on page 62, um, uh, you are quoting the psychologist uh, Vladimir Lefebvre about reflexive control as a measure to aimed at shape an opponent's perceptions, latently compelling him to act willingly in ways that are favourable to one's own strategic objectives. Now, this is indeed what I practice with my children every day, unsuccessfully. <laughs> but I think it would be important if you could unpack that for the audience, because that's obviously framing the information environment, hostile, potentially hostile power framing that, in order to sow mistrust and goes back to that exclusionary uh, use of, of fake news uh, that we were talking about just now. Um. Yes. I, can I make a point about reflexive control? Yeah. I think writing a chapter about Russia was extremely important. We can't disregard Russia, and we can definitely not say that it's not important. However, one of the main points that we're trying to make with this book is say that we should stop freaking out about Russia. Because there's disinformation and misinformation, and disinformation hmm. has to do with um, a hostile actor who is abroad, who is this, this evil person that we can point out and does something really bad to us. But actually misinformation and our own institutions that's that's where our problems are and i think those problems are bigger than reflexive control because disinformation is where it goes on a disinfo website and there's a very exclusive group in maybe <coughs> in society people are already kind of bought into a political view or bought into an ideology and they read misinformation and that gets reaffirmed however if we keep defining it as this 
this external thing and we look at this information, then we forget that when that cycles into mainstream media, it's misinformation. So any sort of regular news source might spread that by doing bad research or just by not having the time to check it. Then it becomes misinformation. And that's actually where it becomes dangerous. That becomes when I read a newspaper in the morning, I read, I don't know, whatever newspaper I like and I trust, I read that and I don't fact check it. Because that's where, and that's where it starts affecting people that can still be turned. So I think it's very important to look at Russia and reflects from towards a discussion that I think Russian scholars should be having. But I don't think that's a discussion we should be having on fake news. And especially uh, fact checking is something we should really be paying more attention to, I think, and that's something we found in the last chapter of the book, that there's a lot of research being done at the moment, and especially in the um, American academic um, sphere, where we're looking at whether fact-checking works at all, and a lot of evidence is saying that it doesn't work, it actually reinforces, it reinforces um, our idea, and it sort of strengthens our belief in an article, because the way we interact with information is not, is um, doesn't particularly sort of allow fact checking. It reinforces to existing biases. Yeah, and it's, it's actually yeah. it, in a lot of the science is, is something that we could translate to policy if we would look into it more. And it's it's quite easy if you start kind of taking it apart. If you would look at um, if you get a fact and you see it several times, then it reinforces your belief in that fact because you might not necessarily remember whether it was right or wrong. And think about it as doing like a university exam, which was probably more recent for us <laughs> than for most of you. But I remember doing my university exams and I I see I get three names and I need to I need to answer A, B, or C. Has this guy done this? And I usually answer I if I forget, I can usually exactly point out where I've read the facts, who has told it to me, who has talked about the topic, but I might not remember whether that guy was right or wrong. I will probably still give that answer because that's the name I've seen before. If you fact-check things and you give people the same fact again, they might start thinking it's more true, regardless of whether you've said it was wrong. And there's all these kind of things that I think we should be looking at. Sorry yeah. for this long speech. But no, 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 it's, it's your book, and I think we're very happy to hear and, your yeah. expertise. I think an, another issue with yeah. kind of facts and assessing the truth of, of statements that are being made is that nowadays when we get news online we often don't know the source so this the confirmation bias will be even stronger in those cases because we'll base the truthfulness of that fact on the content of it rather than whether it comes from an authoritative source so if I already have the view that this is something that I wouldn't agree with I'm not going to be swayed by that um, because I'm also not sure where it comes from, so why should I believe but it? But you make the point that this has happened before, and the whole point about Charles II issuing his <laughs> fake news um, proclamation was because there was this extraordinary thing, before the web for young people, the extraordinary thing was the printing press, which just chucked all that information out there, and it's like, who knows what's true? And uh, the British government and the German government obviously led to chaos across Europe, yeah. arguably, through the, the, the conflicts that, that, that followed... Are there any historical lessons, or I think, as you, as you say in here, in a sense, you have to wait till it calms down and people decide what credible sources of information are again? Yeah, I think one of one of the, <coughs> the differences in today in relation to fake news, one of the changes, um, is that there is there's a change in political culture in in the discourse we use. So, fake news obviously describes um, false information disseminated via media channels, but it's also been used in a kind of derogatory way to um, dis say that certain people aren't 
proper journalists are that's usually those kind of claims are usually based on kind of on the fact that whatever that journalist said probably does is not in line with your own views. So there I think today there's more of, perhaps more of an acceptance to audaciously argue from more emotional points of view that aren't couched in scientific fact and rational argument among politicians. Yeah. Um, so I think that's perhaps one of the main changes today. Okay, um, uh, fascinating. Um, uh, questions, uh, ladies and uh, gentlemen. The, the back row looked like... This event recording was brought to you by the Department of War Studies here at King's College London.